Hillary. I'm Emily. And we're the, we're the sirens. sirens. Today we're talking about the movie Stage Door, which is a 1937 RKO film that was direct, directed by Gregory LaCava. It was adapted from a play that had the same name but a very different plot and different characters. Um, the movie tells the story of several actresses and would-be actresses who live together in a boarding house in New York City. It stars Katherine Hepburn, Ginger Rogers, Adolph Manju, Gail Patrick, Constance Collier, Andrea Leeds, Lucille Ball, Eve Arden, and Ann Miller, and there are also several other actresses who have smaller parts in the movie. The play was written by Edna Ferber and George S. Kaufman, um, but like I said, the storyline of the play is um, remarkably different from the movie. Um, apparently, George S. Kaufman, one of the playwriters, said that the, it, it was so different that the film should have been called Screen Door. <laughs> I read that. I think that's hilarious. Um, so the basic premise of the movie is that the film opens when wealthy Midwestern socialite Terry Randall, who's played by Katherine Hepburn, moves into the Footlights Club, which is a theatrical rooming house in New York City. No one who lives there particularly likes her polished, superior manners. However, she can dish it back just as fast as the other boarders dish it out to her. Her roommate is a sarcastic dancer named Jean, who's played by Ginger Rogers. Um, another notable resident is Linda Shaw, who's played by Gail Patrick, who is would-be actress herself, but she relies on a sugar daddy um, named Anthony Powell, who is an influential theatrical producer. And one day... Anthony Powell sees Jean dancing with her partner at a dance class, and um, he promptly dumps Linda and hires Jean and her partner um, to do a floor show at the nightclub that he owns. Um, meanwhile, Terry, the wealthy socialite, is looking for parts, as is a well-liked co-resident named Kay, who... Um, has in the past um, had great success um, on the stage but hasn't had work for a year and is going through a very rough patch. Tony Powell, the um, producer, ends up hiring Terry in the role that Kay is hoping for. It's not at all due to Terry's skill because t- Terry has no mm-hmm. skill. <laughs> um, uh, not before uh, Terry gives Tony Powell a trouncing for throwing around his power without regard for other people's feelings. The film is generally full of grit, stick and heartbreak, as well as just enough wisecracks and dancing to keep things mostly lighthearted. I would say that's a fair assessment of the plot. <laughs> There's a, there are some nuances, and I'm sure that we will get into as we... <laughs> As we discuss. Yes. You, uh, and w- we should say that this was a listener request. Yeah, When we were talking on Twitter about how it's really hard to find movies with lots of female characters who talk to each other. Yes. <laughs> and this was suggested as a good option. And I don't remember the Twitter handle of the person who suggested it. But thank you. Because I think neither of us had seen this before. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad that we did. Yeah. Um, I do have a little bit of trivia about this movie. Uh, you mentioned the stage version, also called Stage Door. 
That opened at the Music Box Theater in New York on October 22nd, 1936, and ran for 169 performances. Mm-hmm. And Margaret Sullivan played the lead. Oh. Although Catherine Hepburn wanted the lead for that, and she <laughs> did not get it. <laughs> I like that. Um, um, life imitating art. Yes. You also mentioned that the screenplay was very different from the stage play, and uh, Adolf Menjou's character wasn't even in the stage play. So that was entirely to the film, which is a major part of the plot in this movie. Mm -hmm. The director, Gregory LaCava, had the cast improvise most of the boarding house talk. Really? So two weeks prior. I know, which, like, I did not read this until after I saw it, and I was like, oh, this dialogue is so snappy, it's so good, it's so funny. That was just them. (laughs) That was just those actresses. Testament to their skill. Dang. I know. So he had them hang out on the boarding house set for two weeks prior to filming and just like spend time together as if they were actually living together. And then he had a script girl like wandering around writing down their exchanges. And then the ones he liked ended up in the movie. Huh. Oh, so they, so they improvised it before they were actually filming it. And when they were actually filming it, they had some, got it. Yes. So, I mean, it was a little too polished to just be all random things. But. Yeah. yeah. So Catherine Hepburn, this was the period in her career where she was considered, like, box office poison. She had a smaller part in this movie, whereas in previous films she had been, like, the big star. And she was actually supposed to get second billing, and Ginger Rogers was supposed to get first billing. But she objected to that. And the producer was like, well, I don't care. You're lucky to have the seventh role in a star picture at this point. (laughs) And um, she, you know, persisted and they actually added more scenes into the movie as filming went on so that she had a bigger part. And then she and Ginger Rogers had side by side top billing. Jeez. I know. And there were so many characters in this movie, like, famous stars that I feel like it must have been hard to even decide because none of them were fully developed. Yeah. And so it was kind of like, it wasn't like there was a lead. It was more like you can see all these stars and this is a great ensemble cast or Mm -hmm. something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I guess you have to put somebody above the title. Yes. Just because you have so many names. (laughs) Yeah, I know. But like Adolf got... Uh, he got a high billing above Andrea Leeds, and I thought, like, she was great. I don't know. It was, I guess it doesn't matter based on the performance. It's more who's more famous. Yeah. And if you're above the above the, t- the title, then you automatically get paid more money. Yes. So Ann Miller had a smaller part in this movie, and she was dancing alongside Ginger Rogers in their, like, duet in the club and in the rehearsal scenes. Mm-hmm. She was only 14. What? Yes. She was 14 years old. She lied about her age and got a fake birth certificate and she was tall and like looked older. And so as a 14 year old girl, she held her own dancing side by side with Ginger Rogers, who's like one of the most famous dancers in the world. <laughs> oh my God. I know. I thought that was amazing. When I was 14, I was like, you know, still playing pretend in the backyard. I mean, as we know, when I was 14, I was recording uh, Court Jester Dialogue and playing it for myself <laughs> in my parents' basement, so. So, way to show us up, Ann Miller. 
<laughs> so the Footlights Club, the boarding house where they lived, was based on the Rehearsal Club, which was founded in 1913. And Edna Ferber, who was one of the playwrights, was very familiar with it. And it was located on West 53rd Street in New York. So I guess... It, you know, it's basically a real place. And this, this movie reminded me of a lot of other movies and books that I have read and seen that were, like, about trying to make it on the mm -hmm. stage at this time. So I'm sure there were plenty of boarding houses like this. Yeah. And finally, Andrea Leeds, who plays Kay, this was her only Oscar-nominated performance. Oh. And I don't, I don't think she appeared in that many films. Yeah, I, I didn't. I didn't recognize her. Although at the beginning, there was a moment where I thought, "Wait, is that Olivia De Havilland?" <laughs> I thought the same thing. I was like, "She looks like Olivia De Havilland, but she's more petite." I'm confused. Yeah, is this a Joan Fontaine movie? <laughs> um, is there a so third sister? <laughs> I know, I was like, she does look a lot like her, especially with kind of looking, like, angelic mm -hmm. and, like, sad and wistful, like she did as Melanie in Gone with the Wind. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, totally. Well, I bioed, I think that was what you were going to ask me before we got sidetracked on Olivia de Havilland, I bioed Gail Patrick, who we have seen previously in um, My Man Godfrey. So should I tell you a little bit about her? Yes, please. So she was born Margaret Lavelle Fitzpatrick in 1911 in Birmingham, Alabama. Her father was a fireman and for Birmingham, and she went to college at Howard College, where she remained after graduation as acting dean of women. Then she completed two years of law school at the University of Alabama, and had aspirations to be the state's governor, which means she was kind of a badass. But yeah. in 1932, um, just sort of on a whim, so she was, you know, still in her early 20s, so, you know, still trying to figure out the, the path for her life, she just decided that she would enter a Paramount Pictures beauty contest, and she won train fare to go to Hollywood uh, with her brother. Um, she didn't win the contest, but she was offered a standard contract. She used her law skills to go to the studio officials and negotiate better rates in her contract. Um, the customary... That's awesome. Yeah. So the customary rate apparently was $50 a week. She said she had to have $75 a week and that she also would not accept some other like standard practices in the contract. She also read the fine print on the contract and blacked out the cause saying that she had to do, like, various other, like, advertising um, schemes if she wasn't being used in, in films or to help promote the films because she still had this idea that she was going to have to go back to Alabama and practice law and she didn't want photos of herself just, like, out there in the universe. Very clever. I mean, that's that, that has come back to bite Meghan Markle in the butt. Yeah. <laughs> Gail Patrick was no Meghan Markle, let's just say. <laughs> Over the course of her career as an actor, um, she had a, just a few starring roles, but mostly appeared as the cool, aloof, and usually unsympathetic other woman that we see both here and in My Man Godfrey. She appeared in more than 60 movies between 1932 and 1948 when she retired. However, so she was in 60 movies over 
16 years, but she didn't watch herself on screen at all. And it was only in 1979 that she screened a print of My Man Godfrey that one of her friends had gotten. And that was the very first time she saw herself on screen because she was so afraid of the camera. And then she also hated seeing herself, hated the idea of seeing herself. And so when she... I've heard some stars still do that. They just like, they're like, no, I don't, I don't see my movies. Yes. I don't know. I'm curious about that. But she said that when she watched herself on screen, she said, My fright emerged as haughtiness, and I can see where I got my image as a snob and a meanie. She said, My Man Godfrey is the movie that typed me and the one that I'm still asked about. So, in other words, her fright, like, (laughs) came off as being mean. (laughs) She was married several times over the course of her life. The first time was in 1936 to a restaurateur named Robert Cobb, who was also the owner of the Hollywood Stars baseball team. And even though they divorced in 1941, which kind of was a surprise to their Hollywood set, she still maintained a relationship with the the baseball team. She went on during World War II to do uh, tours of Canada promoting victory loans, which she apparently was the only film star to visit all of Canada from coast to coast. Um, When she came back from the war, she got married a second time to a lieutenant named Arnold Dean White, got married, and she unfortunately gave birth prematurely to twins who died soon after, and she then subsequently became a diabetic. And then she and and Arnold Dean White divorced um, in 1946. About a year later, she married her third husband, whose name was Thomas Cornwell Jackson. She took and kept his last name. So in 1947, she became known as Gail Patrick Jackson. She created a business out of her home designing clothing for children and then eventually moved that shop to Rodeo Drive. The shop was called The Enchanted Cottage. Uh, She ran that shop for another eight years very successfully. By that time, she had stopped acting and had moved on to hosting a TV show called Home Plate, which was a post-game interview show that followed TV broadcasts of Hollywood stars' baseball games. And then she and her husband adopted a couple of children in the 1950s. And then, so her husband was a um, an advertising, he, he worked in an advertising agent, agency, but he was also a literary agent for the attorney and author Earl Stanley Gardner, who created the f- fictional criminal defense attorney Perry Mason. And Earl Stanley Gardner was trying to get Warner Brothers to pick up a film adaptation of the Perry Mason series. Warner Brothers wasn't having it. So um, Gail Patrick Jackson basically worked her old connections in show business and, like, showed her business acumen and formed a production company with her husband and Earl Stanley Gardner, and they produced Perry Mason as a television show, which ran for nine seasons and earned a bunch of awards. It was a success, and she was its executive producer, which at the time made her one of the very first women producers. Her Their house was actually a shooting location for um, the series. She went on to um, serve two terms as vice president of the National Academy of Television Arts and Sciences, 
and she was also the first woman to serve in the in a leadership capacity in the academy and in fact was the only female leader up until 1983 she wow. yeah she and um her third husband were divorced in 1969 but they stayed business partners and then she in 1974 she married her fourth husband named John Veld Jr and she died 6 years later at the age of 69 from leukemia um at home she was cremated, and her ashes were scattered at, at sea off of Santa Monica. Did you know she was so cool when you chose her? No, I did not. I just she knew... She sounds great. Yeah, I just knew that we had seen her in Mammon Godfrey, and I wanted to know a little bit more about her. Yeah. I remember in that movie that I thought she had really good chemistry with Godfrey, and I was like, you guys should get together. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I'm glad you bioed her. Yeah. Less badassy, but um, I bioed Adolf Manjou, and he was known, as you could see from this movie, for playing roguish magnetic men about town. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> he was born on February 18th, 1890, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey! And I know, uh, so many Pennsylvania, New Jersey people. He was christened Adolf Jean Manjou, the son of a hotel manager. Um, his Irish mother was actually a distant cousin of James Joyce. Yeah. So, pedigree. Yeah, the kind of um, pedigree we care about. Yes. His French father was an immigrant and eventually moved the family to Cleveland, where he operated a chain of restaurants. But his father disapproved of show business, and when Adolf seemed interested in it, he sent him away to military school in Indiana. <laughs> Mil- hoping to disavow him of this Mil- Military school in Indiana. That'll show him. Yes. Um, it didn't work. So Adolf went to Cornell University, where his father wanted him to study engineering. But he changed his major to liberal arts and began auditioning for those college plays. Uh, but in his third year, he had to leave Cornell to help his father manage the family business when they were in financial crisis. And... He never went back, and after things had calmed down with family, he moved to New York to pursue the stage. Hey, hey. Yeah. Um, in his early acting days, he dabbled in vaudeville and made ends meet by working a ton of different jobs. He was a laborer, a haberdasher, and a waiter, and he found work as extras and like bit parts um, for different film studios starting in 1915 when they were still based in New York. Um, but then World War One happened and interrupted his career, so he served as a captain with the Ambulance Corps in France, oh. and after the war, he worked as a productions manager and unit manager, so he kind of knew the back end of film at that point. When the film industry moved to California, he also did, and in 1921, he received substantial roles in The Faith Healer and Through the Back Door, and he signed with Paramount at that point and was cast as Louis VIII in the silent movie The Three Musketeers, and then Raoul de St. Hubert, which I'm butchering because you know I don't know French, <laughs> in The Chic. <laughs> Adolf took really well to the Hollywood lifestyle <laughs> and developed a personal reputation as an urbane ladies' man, uh-huh. and pa- Paramount capitalized on his playboy image by casting him as callous leads in movies like Broadway After Dark, Sinners and Silk, Ace of Cads, A Social Celebrity, and A Gentleman of Paris. 
after the stock market crashed, Paramount terminated his contract, and then MGM picked him up, but at a much lesser salary. And he played Gary Cooper's romantic rival in Morocco in 1930, and then that kind of set the tone for the type of roles he would play throughout the 30s. So he was often, like, the 'er ne'er-do-well, other love interest of the female lead. (laughs) He was nominated for Best Actor for his performance as editor Walter Burns in The Front Page. You know, we talked about with His Girl Friday. Mm -hmm. During World War II, he entertained the troops overseas, and he made broadcasts in a host of different languages because he was fluent in six languages. In 1942, he played uh, the Billy Flynn lawyer role opposite Ginger Rogers' felon in the Chicago adaptation Roxy Hart. Um, And he kept appearing in movies in the 1940s and 50s, but uh, his last lead was in the Cracker Jack thriller The Sniper, and his last, like, significant role beyond that was the anti-war film Paths of Glory, in which he played the the villainous General Brulard and appeared for the first time without his signature mustache. So here's the bad part. (laughs) He held right-wing political views. No! And cooperated as a, quote, friendly witness at the House Un-American Activities Commission hearing under Joseph McCarthy. And that really damaged his reputation in the industry. And, you know, his his career definitely declined. Good. He was married three times, the final to actress Varie Teasdale, who survived him. Um, and he was named the country's best-dressed man nine times and titled his autobiography, quote, it took nine tailors. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, no. And he, his last appearance was in Disney's Pollyanna in 1960. And he died in 1963 after a nine-month battle with hepatitis, Ugh. which is not a good way to go. No. Yuck. So, I mean, I've seen him in a bunch of things, just like in smaller roles, which is why I wanted to bio him. But then when I read about him, you know, being cozy with all of the Red Scare folks, I was like, I should have just done Lucille Ball, (laughs) even though she was in a smaller role. Yes. (laughs) Should we get into it? Yes, let's get into it. So I feel like there's so much to say in this movie, but the first thing is that it was really hard for me to watch a movie in which Katherine Hepburn was so unlikable. <laughs> oh, I didn't think she was unlikable. I I liked her. Uh, I thought I mean she wasn't like I mean she was wasn't she clear cut. She was she was no more unlikable than every other character in this movie. I mean, I feel like Kay was the only one who was, like, unilaterally likable. Yeah, Kay was... I mean, I also kind of liked some of the minor roles, like the maid and, like, the acting coach. Yeah. I thought she was unlikable, though, for two reasons. One, because she seemed totally ignorant about poverty and was just like flouncing around like you're so silly why didn't you eat today yeah and like and then she had that attitude of like pull yourself up by your bootstraps like if you guys aren't being successful in film it's because you're not trying hard enough and I was like lady you literally just rolled in here you have no training (laughs) no experience nothing yeah and you're gonna come in and tell these girls who have been struggling most Probably for years, some of them, that, like, they're not giving it their all. I, I, I hate that attitude. She seemed to pretty quickly, like, realize that she needed to shape up. And she also used that personal wealth for good and her personal, like, power for good when she, like, 
marched into Tony Powell's office and was like, hey, you can't treat people like this. Like, no one else had the gall to do that, and she only had the gall to do that because she wasn't used to people treating her like that. I mean, it didn't really make a difference, but, you know, I liked that there was somebody championing the, you know, like, the underdog. Yeah. I mean, I liked that she told him off, but I still, I disliked that she had sort of just the sense of entitlement that comes from, like, I literally have no background in this, and I just kind of am on a whim thinking I'm end. And then in the movie, she's the one who makes it. And why does she make it? Because her father pays for her to be in a show. Yeah. So she gets her foot in the door and... Well, she only makes it because Kay dies. And she finally... She finally experiences heartache. Like, she finally has her own tragedy in her life that she can draw from. I mean, having not seen this movie before, I really thought it was going to go in a different direction of Terry gets the lead, she's terrible, and then at the last minute, she realizes that Kay wanted the part, and she says, no, you should go on. And Kay's like an actual good actress who has experience. Like, that's what I thought was going to happen. Yeah, I assumed that that was going to happen too. Yeah. But that, you know... Instead of that, why don't we have the person who's a good actress die, and then the person who like has no experience and has up until this point been terrible becomes a big star? Yeah, I was sort of expecting it to go the first way too, that it would be Kay who would like jump in at the last minute and be a big success. Yeah, I mean, I won't. I it wasn't like oh, I hated this character. It was just more that she seemed entitled, oblivious. And a little bit annoying, and I was just like, but I want to be, like, 100% <laughs> yay Catherine Hepburn. Yeah. And I was not able to do that in this movie. <laughs> yeah. What about Ginger Rogers? She's great, but I also, I I was a little confused by her character, to be honest, because she she seemed like she wanted to make it, and then she, I was confused by, like, she shames her roommate for like having a relationship with this producer she doesn't seem interested in the producer it doesn't seem like like she's really getting much out of the deal beyond some like money i guess Mm -hmm. or like you know gifts and she still goes through with it i would have expected her to not have the affair based on the way that she had acted it's like she went through with it just to, to piss off linda the Gail Patrick character, because she was just always trying to, like, make that this other woman mad. And then, you know, so she finally ended up going through with it because she knew it was going to rile her up. And then, you know, and then she got drunk, and then she was like, you know, then it was sort of this, like, happy thing. I, yeah, I didn't know how I felt about that aspect of it. And I was, I was expecting that the people who had the affair with this guy would then end up becoming, like, the big stars. But that wasn't how it played out. So I was kind of like, why are you even doing this? Yeah. Then you would think that... I mean, there was a point point where I assumed that Ginger Rogers' character was going to be cast in the part that was meant for Kay. Just as a total aside about Ginger Rogers, you can tell in every scene that she's in that she's a dancer, no matter what she's doing. <laughs> like, just the way she, like, walks down the stairs or, like, turns and looks at someone, she just, she's so athletic, and I felt like in this movie, among so many other women, she, it really stood out even more to me, the way she moved. Well, and when she was dancing with Ann Miller, it, it sort of brought it out more. And I guess now knowing that Ann Miller was 
basically a child and extremely less <laughs> experienced than her. But, you know, she was dancing in a way that was, like, sort of expected for someone who was just trying to make it in New York City and didn't have a lot of experience. And then dancing next to Ginger Rogers, who so tight and so, like, on on her mark. And so, just, like, with the music, you, it was such a, like, stark contrast. They were like, okay, this is like, why is your character not a successful dancer? Because you obviously have the moves for it. Yeah. I mean, she, to me, out of everyone in the movie, seemed the most obvious, like, this person should be a star. Like, her look and her talent that, like, I mean, I love Katherine Hepburn, but it's not like she walks into a room and, like, everyone turns and is like, oh my gosh, like, this person. Yeah. But Ginger Rogers, like, that would happen. Yeah. Well, and in fact, that's what Tony Powell does. He, like, walks into the room with all these dancers, and he's seeing all these dancers, and he looks at Ginger Rogers' character and is like, who's the blonde? (laughs) I thought it was interesting that even though Terry was supposed to be, like, from the Midwest, and they, like, make fun of her for, what what's the industry that they're in? Like, the wheat. Like, oh, you know, there's pieces of wheat on you and stuff. She's the only one who was savvy to, like, what um, Adolf's character was doing. You know, he had he claimed he had a family and was separated. He had, like, a whole routine of, like, I do, like, X, Y, Z thing. And, and she was just like, no, what are you doing? This is obviously just all predetermined, and you're just pulling the wool over my eyes. And yeah. I was kind of like, sh- sh- I mean, and they're all supposed to have been in New York for a while, but they seem kind of naive about certain things. Yeah. Well, just like she's naive about poverty and what it's like to be in the big city, they're naive about what it's like to be a socialite. I wonder, like, if in her backstory she, you know, was used to being a socialite and having to mingle with, like, men like him that are, you know, trying to, you know, booze up young women. There are some savvy people in the Midwest. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I mean, that is, I am not commenting on the Midwest. I'm just saying in this movie they make fun of her. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, very savvy people come from places like Illinois. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was sort of a nice contrast that, like, you know, she had she had a lot to learn, but there was this one way that she could protect, you know, the other women in a way. And Ginger Rogers' character in particular, because she could figure yeah. it out. And then when Jean, Ginger Rogers' character, comes back to Tony Powell's room and catches Terry, you know, sort of being seduced by him, theoretically, you know, she can, like, go whole hog into it and, and make her realize just how, like, how much of a jerk he is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I thought that was a pretty generous thing for her to do, because... Of- the way that everyone already didn't like her at the boarding house, I was like, do you really want to bring more ire on yourself? <laughs> <laughs> no, don't do it. This whole movie kind of... Have you ever read the book Sister Carrie? I have read or parts, like, of, parts of it. Because it did... Some parts of it read to me like that whole sort of cautionary tale of like small town girl goes to the city and she's going to try and get his show business and be corrupted Mm -hmm. because like a lot of the storylines appear like that. Like, you know, to try to get ahead, these girls have to like sleep with men and hope it advances their career or they're like practically starving and dying because 
they can't make it work. It really, like, fed into that narrative, but then it also subverted it because, like, I guess maybe not because the person who ends up becoming the star is not is not some poor girl who's like, on a wish and a prayer, I will make it. Right. She makes it because her dad finances the show so that she can be in it, so that it will flop, so that she'll come home. Yeah. Way to go, Dad. <laughs> Way to go about caring about all the other people who work on that show. I, I watched this, and what I liked about it was just seeing all these actresses, like, make wisecracks and hang out together. Yeah. But in terms of, like, a narrative that's about making it as a star, I was like, just go watch 42nd Street People. <laughs> like, if you, if you want to see someone, like, has to, like, get in the chorus line and comes from nothing and has to pay their dues and, like, eventually becomes a star, like, I found that to be a more satisfying way of doing this story than this one. Yeah. Although this storyline had a cat in it that was extremely oh, that's docile. True. Yeah, that cat, I was thinking, I, I they had to have drugged that yes. cat. To make and the classic, the classic joke of, oh, it's a boy cat. Oh, no, it had kittens. Change its name from Henry to Henrietta. <laughs> uh, I liked how it was always wearing a bow. Yeah, yeah. It was like no other cat that I've seen. Oh, beautiful girl. What a gorgeous creature. Beautiful girl. Let me call a preacher, what can I do but give my heart to you? Do you want to, I was going to mention the cat when we talked costumes. Do you want to talk costumes? Ooh, yes, let's talk, talk costumes. My note about costumes is a bunch of lady actors in pants. <laughs> Exclamation point. I know, they all looked so good. I really liked, there was... One scene where Ginger Rogers is wearing, it almost looked like a pencil skirt, but it had suspenders. Yes. And I really liked that, and I thought I would wear that. Yeah. And then there's a a, um, a suit that um, Lucille Ball's character is wearing that is, like, very low-waisted. The jacket is really low-waisted, and then there's this, like, cute skirt to it. But it had this sort of tux look to it, but it was a skirt. It was kind of interesting seeing Lucille Ball in a role like this. Mm-hmm. And just just one of the girls. Yeah. And not, like, a star. Yeah, and not totally hamming it up. She was just, like, delivering lines like a straight character. Yeah. Oh, I, I feel like we also have to comment on Katherine Hepburn's hats in this movie, because... <laughs> Is that a signature thing that I just don't know about for Catherine Hepburn? I mean, that she, she does wears hats all the time. She does wear ridiculous hats in a lot of movies, and they're often like think really strange things with like tassels and or like some sort of tricord feature. Is it like is it something about her face that they're trying to compliment, or is it just like that it's the 1930s and people wear hats like that? I think it's just that it's the 1930s and she usually plays rich characters <laughs> because she is from that background. That's right, because she sounds like a rich character. I, I also kind of liked um, the cute outfits they wore to rehearse the tap dancing that were almost like jumpsuits. Oh, yeah. Or like rompers. Yeah. I would wear those. I mean, I would try to wear those. Yeah. Well, and it was nice to see the, the contrast in what they wore, sort of their everyday clothes. And then when they go to see Terry on the stage on her opening night, they get dressed up. And, um, or when they dress for dinner for these dinner dates, that they, there's some, you know, 
contrast between the everyday and the fancy clothes. Yeah. And I like that it showed them all, like, borrowing each other's clothes and stuff. Mm -hmm. Oh, apparently, I read this in the New York Times, like, a couple years ago, but there... There, some of these like women's boarding houses still exist. What? And I immediately was like, "How did I not know about this?" Because th- there's at least one that the money for it was left in some kind of trust. So like it goes, it continues. It's in Manhattan, and the rent is relatively cheap compared to like other places. I mean, which would be maybe like, you know, fifteen hundred dollars for like a one bedroom, and you have like communal space. Mm-hmm. But it all has to be, like, young, single women, and and there's still certain house rules of, like, you know, you can't have boys stay over and stuff. It's not, like, religious, but it's, like, old boarding house rules, so I thought that sounded really... I would love to live in, like, a big old apartment building with a bunch of ladies hanging out. Yeah. I mean, we would have to not have lamb stew every day, or... How did they, they, there was some hilarious way of describing the soup that if they cooked the soup, it would be thick enough to drink or something. I don't know. It was oh some way of, there was, and they kept talking about skinning the cat or like the cat ending up in the food. Yeah, that was less funny. (laughs) (laughs) We all want to help one another. Human beings are like that. We want to live by each other's happiness, not by each other's misery. Um, What did you think in terms of social justice? Well, we talked a little bit about the, you know, depictions of, or feelings about poverty, right, that they, you know, that Catherine Hepburn's character really has no clue about it. And then there's Kay's character, who, some indications that she isn't eating because she doesn't have any money, because she hasn't worked for a year, and the the boarding house uh, director is trying to, uh, you know, be kind, but, you know, she says something about how she's putting her in an uncomfortable position because, of course, she has to pay, you know, her own bills and Kay isn't paying her because she doesn't have any money. Yeah, I thought it was nice that she let her stay. Yeah. But it did seem, like, I guess you couldn't, especially in a situation like that where most of your boarders are aspiring actresses, like, if you got in a habit of letting too many people stay who weren't paying, you would be on the street yourself. Right, you wouldn't have any money. <laughs> Can you think of any other, like, depictions that are, or parts of this movie that speak to social justice? I mean, I don't know if this is more social justice or, like, Bechtley, but it definitely showed, like, older, an older man of means taking advantage of, like, younger women without access to opportunity. Yeah. And it, like, showed that as a negative thing in this movie. Yeah. I don't know how... I mean, how did you feel about the K suicide? I thought it was tastefully depicted that, you know, she was at the end of her rope, and she had tried so hard to be good and hopeful and happy for other people, but then, you know, she just couldn't take it anymore, and, you know, had tried so hard, and then, you know, you don't actually... We don't actually see the the act of suicide itself, but we see that people are, you know, really hurt by it. You know, I thought that was, it was about as tastefully done as it could be done. Yeah, I mean, I thought it was pretty tastefully done as well. I The part I found a little bit unbelievable about it was that she died and everyone still went to the, see the play. Yeah. Well, the, most of them are already gone, right? When the, because she, she times it so that everyone has left and then she goes up and throws herself down and there are just a few other people who are there. Yeah, Ginger Rogers comes to tell Terry that it's all her fault. Yeah. (laughs) And then 
which I was like, um, you don't, that's not a good thing to do in any situation. But I felt like that seemed very, like, realistic, that yeah. in, in her grief she would lash out at this person and be like, this is your fault. The, the one part I found frustrating about it was that, like, how could Terry not have known that that was the part that she wanted with all of those girls, like, living together and they all knew it? No one said anything to her? Because it seemed like if she had known that... Did everyone that, else know that that was the part she wanted? Yeah, I mean, she talked about it in earlier scenes, oh. like, oh, Enchanted April, and and they were like, oh, yeah, they, like you were met for this part. Oh, and yeah. they made it seem, like, pretty desperate on her end, because they imply that the role that Terry's playing is very close to Kay's actual life. Like, you know, oh, right. that yeah. she maybe is separated and, like, basically can't go home because she has nowhere to go. Right. So, it seems sad to me. Although, I'm kind of... I, I don't I was like, couldn't you just, like, get another way to make money while you keep this dream alive? Yeah, like, wouldn't you just, like, go try... Now you just sound like Katherine Hepburn, is what you sound like. I know, but it's less like, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, and then it's just like, there is another path where you can eat and pay your rent, but still keep working on this. yeah. I, but I wonder if there were fewer opportunities in the 1930s than there were than there are now, where like you had to go to like you know producers' offices and producers were only open nine to five, and um, you know, like your only other option was to be like a waitress. But if you're a waitress, then you were like no longer part of like regular society or something. I don't know. I'm just yeah, making that's it true. Because I was thinking, oh, you could work at a perfume counter, but that would probably conflict with producer hours. Uh, well, did you hear in the news about how this actor on the Cosby show was shamed yes. for working at a Trader Joe's? Yeah. And I was like, I would work at a Trader Joe's. That seems like a pretty great <laughs> gig. That made me so upset. It's like, do you not understand what the creative life is, everyone has to have another job. <laughs> like, that's... Yeah. Well... That's how it is. Yeah. Well, and, like, that 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 encounter discovery happened, you know, a week after that actress who was on ER was shot by the police in Pasadena. Did you hear about that? Oh, no, I did not hear about yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, so someone who, like, hadn't been working very successfully, you know, had, well, had been an actor, but then had sort of had to drop out of acting for health reasons, um, and I don't know the full details of the stories, but, you know, she was in distress, and the police came and, and shot her in her apartment. When I was younger, I was really interested in, theater and acting and I thought like when I would dream about like oh maybe that's a path I could take but the more I learn about that industry the more I think nope that would not have been for me yeah (laughs) it just it seems so hard and like everything is just set up for you to fail and like just the lifestyle seems really tough one way to get through it is to live in a situation like this boarding house where you're surrounded by people who are in the same boat so that, you know, when you get a part, even if it's just one line, you know, like the woman at the end um, of the movie, you know, there's 15 girls who, like, crowd around and, like, oh, tell us your line and, you know, tell us about their show and they, you know, they're giving her a hard time but they're also, like, celebrating with her at this tiny win. I've been living my own life, making my own decisions for a long while now. 
It's impossible to go back to being treated like a child again. Well, uh, on that note, did you think this movie passed the Bechdel test? Yes, I do, because they talked about work with each other. Yeah, I mean, they don't, they, they definitely talk about work more than they talk about men in this movie. Yeah, which was refreshing. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the first movie we've talked about that we can say that about. Yeah. Like, the majority of the female conversation was not about relationships. <laughs> Thank God. Um, so what rating would you give it? Um, I think I would give it a four. Oh, wow. In part because of the ending and how it sort of nicely tied everything up in a way that was sort of, it was, like, hard to watch, but it was, like, it made sense. It, like, pulled all the pieces together. What rating would you, yeah. what rating would you give it? Uh-huh. I think I would give it a three, and I liked it. Um, I liked the stars in it, and I liked the subject matter. I didn't particularly like or identify with any of the characters, but I just liked watching these actresses, and I liked the boarding house. So (laughs) I will say three. Yeah. That's fair. Those are fair reasons to give it a three. Yeah, and I was glad I watched it. And um, this was not on our list, so I'm glad that we added it. Mm-hmm. And, and now I want to watch 42nd Street. Yes, which had a, a new restoration recently, oh, yeah. so maybe we should try to do that at some point. Yeah, next season. I can't guarantee that I will not sing on the podcast every time 42nd Street. <laughs> Move it up. I want to hear it. <laughs> May it please the court, I submit that my entire line of defense is based on the proposition that persons of the female sex should be dealt with before the law as the equals of persons of the male sex. Follow The Screen Sirens on Twitter at The Screen Sirens. And leave us a review on iTunes or SoundCloud to help other people find us. Thanks for listening. After all, tomorrow is another day.